You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to read the first 11 verses, Philippians chapter 2 together, and then we'll open in prayer. The Apostle writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and we ask that you would be our teacher this morning. Help us to see who we are before you. We pray that you would humble us. And help us to see exactly what it is that resides in our own hearts in order that we might humble ourselves before you, that you might exalt us at the proper time. Thank you for your grace and your goodness and this revelation of yourself. And we ask now your blessing on our study and our time spent in your word, that we may see you and that you might give us light. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at some familiar verses in Philippians chapter 2. We started looking at this chapter last week, and we saw in the first two verses how the Apostle Paul gives us instruction on how to live with each other. And the subject is unity. The subject is dwelling together in harmony and maintaining the same love and maintaining the same mind and maintaining the same heart, intent on one purpose. And the Apostle Paul is saying, basically, since all of these things are true of you, since you have consolation in Christ and comfort of love, since you have enjoyed the affection and the mercies of God, since you have the fellowship of the Spirit, since all of these things have become yours in Christ as a result of the graciousness of God in salvation, therefore you have a duty. You owe something to your fellow man. You owe something to your brother or sister in Christ. And what is it that we owe? Verse 2, we are to be intent on one purpose. We are to be united in the same mind. We are to dwell together in harmony. You and I, since we have received affection, owe affection to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Since we have received comfort, we owe that comfort to them. Since we have received love, we owe that love. You get the idea? Now, if you and I don't pay that to somebody else, if you and I don't live in harmony, we don't live in unity, if we don't live with oneness of mind and intent on one purpose, then it says something about how we view the blessings we've been given. It is a practical denial of the Gospel. 
When we don't live that way, it is a practical denial of the Gospel. It is as if we're saying, I haven't received any love from Christ, therefore I owe no love to my brother in Christ. I haven't received any affection. I don't enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit, therefore I don't owe that to somebody else. So Paul says, since these things are true, this is how you ought to behave toward one another. Now this whole section really begins at verse 27 of chapter 1. And this is where Paul introduces sort of the ethical section of the letter. Those things that you and I should have in our lives as a manifestation of the gospel. He is imploring us to have a conduct, a behavior that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What has the gospel done? The gospel has brought people of all races and all nations and men and women, slave and free, all classes of society, and it has made them all one in Jesus Christ. If that's true, then we ought to live out in the church the reality that the Gospel has brought to pass. And that's what Paul wants. But before we can learn to live with each other, we have to, or before we can learn to live for each other, we have to learn to live with each other. It's difficult to live for your spouse if you can't live with your spouse. And it's difficult to live for the people in the body if you can't stand living with the people in the body. That's why Paul begins with telling us how to live with each other. Now in verses 3 and 4, we're going to be looking at that this morning, he tells us how we are to live for each other. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now these are familiar verses. In fact, right after I became a Christian, these are some of the first couple of verses that I memorized in my early Christian life. Memorized them early. and I've known them my whole Christian life. I'm still trying to put them into practice. It's easy to put them into memory. It's very difficult to put them into practice. And what makes them so intimidating, and what makes us sort of shy away from this, is not verses 3 and 4, it's verse 5 and what follows. Have this mindset in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, be humble, think of other people's interests, and we say, okay, we can wrestle with that. And then Paul says, be just like Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to at all costs, but he emptied himself and became a man and died the most humiliating death, even the death of the cross for you. Now that's intimidating, is it not? I talk about humility. Paul says, be humble. Alright, I can work on that. Then be humble like Jesus. I mean, that just puts it out of the stratosphere. We can't even, can't even imagine what that type of humility is. And yet, that is the model that we are told to fashion ourselves after. Easy to put these verses into our memory. Difficult to put these verses into practice. Probably the most well-known and least practiced verses in all the book of Philippians. The most well-known and least practiced verses in all the book of Philippians. And it's the lack of practicing this that creates disharmony and disunity between Christians. It's really what it boils down to. You gotta live with each other, and you gotta learn to live for each other. So that I'm living for you, you're living for me, we're all living for each other, we're laying aside our own interests, focused on the interests of others. That's the issue. And Paul describes three things. He describes our motive, he describes our mindset, and he describes our mission. Our motive, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, our mindset, have the, re, regard one another as more important than yourselves in humility of mind, and then our mission, look out for others, not just your own interests. So let's deal with each one of those three in turn. Beginning at verse 3, let's look at our motive. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. 
do nothing. Now I want you to stop right there, and it's appropriate for us to emphasize this, because in the Greek there's a double negative there. Not a double negative in the sense of don't do nothing, which means actually do something. It's not that type of a double negative. But twice the Apostle Paul says not or don't. Once before selfish ambition, and then he again repeats the don't before empty conceit. As if he's saying, don't do this, and don't do that, and the emphasis is on do nothing. Now what does nothing mean? What does nothing mean? That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Is Paul just talking about our conduct with each other on a Sunday morning from 10.45 to 12 o'clock? Or is Paul just talking about our conduct in our home with our wives and our children? Or is Paul just talking about our conduct out in the workplace? How about when you're all alone and there's nobody to be selfish against? What's Paul talking about? Do absolutely nothing. Now friends, that is difficult for me to even imagine. And as we talk about what selfishness is, you're going to see just how pervasive that attitude of selfishness can be amongst us. Do nothing from selfishness or from empty conceit. Do absolutely nothing. The word selfish, eretheia, this is kind of a neat word. In Paul's day, it had horrible connotations, a horribly negative word. But listen, it wasn't always like that. You know how in language words, the meaning of words changes over time? We've seen that even in our own day. I was watching uh, Gilligan's Island with my kids a while back. Now, I wasn't even really paying attention to Gilligan's Island because you don't need to in order to enjoy it. So I wasn't even really paying attention to it, but during the course of one of these episodes, the professor mentioned that one of the other characters was gay. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, my, my bells went off and whistles, and I saw lights, and my blood pressure went up, and I was looking for the remote, and then I realized the word gay meant something back in the 70s and the 60s that it doesn't mean today. We don't use that word the same today that we used to use it, do we? Tolerance is another word whose meaning has changed. It doesn't mean putting up with something that you disagree with anymore. Now today it means actually endorsing something that violates every moral standard that you have. So words change over the course of time. We don't use the term gay today like they used to use it back in the 60s and 70s. Somebody walks up to you and says, how are you doing? You, say, you smile big and say, I'm gay, thanks for asking. <laughs> They're going to take your man card from you in a hurry. <laughs> we just don't use that term that way anymore. This word that Paul uses is a word that started out just simply referring to a day laborer, somebody you would hire to work out in your field. It was a day laborer. You got a harvest to put in. You need a couple works of sort of a couple weeks of transient labor. So you go out and you hire a day laborer, an erethea to come in and just work for you for a couple of weeks time. No big deal. Just somebody who worked for you, a hired hand. Then it came to be used of a hireling. Somebody who was always sort of lurking around, looking for something to do, but their main motive was to take advantage of somebody else, to simply go after the buck. What they really wanted was the money, and so they did it for the monetary advancement. Then the word came to be used of somebody who was seeking their own interests at the interests of others. Then the word came to be used after that of politicians who would use their political office for their own gain, for their own selfish purposes and their own selfish preservation. So it started out just meaning somebody who was hired. It came to be used of somebody who was in it for the money. It's the same word that Paul uses of the rival preachers back in chapter 1, verse 17, that some preached Christ from selfish ambition. They wanted something for themselves out of it. That's the word that's used. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Something for yourself. What is your motive in this? It came to be used, it kind of had the idea also of tearing somebody down while you build yourself up. You ever done that with your mouth? It's easy to make yourself feel real good, isn't it? When you just pistol whip somebody else with your words. Either in their presence or out of their presence or behind their back. Or so that eventually they'll find out about it. And you just tear them down with your words and it makes yourself look pretty good. That's some, that's an Arathea. That's somebody who does something out of selfishness and empty conceit. Selfishness, selfishness is one of the most destructive, insidious, poisonous, ever-present sins in the human heart. You know why selfishness is so seductive? Because you, it doesn't all the time have to be something that is manifested. Sometimes the most selfless-looking person can be motivated with the most selfish desires. Sometimes the most apparently selfless act can be done by the most selfish person, and you could never see it. You don't even have to manifest selfishness in your own presence. If you're all alone, you can be selfish in your heart. You don't even have to tear anybody else down. Just to do anything that you do for the advancement of yourself for your own benefit is selfishness. Let me give you some examples of how this manifests itself in our lives, and we don't even check it. We don't even really realize this. You're at church this morning. Why'd you come here? Why'd you come here? Well, there's a potluck this afternoon, and it would look kind of awkward if I just showed up for the potluck and I didn't come to church. Or I have I wasn't here last week, or actually I haven't been here for two or three weeks, and I don't want people to realize or to think something is wrong with me, that I don't like church and I've got an appearance to keep up. Or my football team doesn't happen to be playing this morning, or at least televised, and so this is really no sacrifice for me to be here. And on and on it goes. Why do you serve? in the ministry that you serve in? Because you get a thrill out of using your spiritual gift? Is that why you do it? You serve because you want to keep up appearances so other people realize how holy or gifted you are? Why is it that you serve? Why do you give? Do you give because you think the leaders of the church have any idea how much you give? We don't. You think you give, do you give because you think we know how much you give and we're going to think bad of you if you don't give a certain amount? Is that why you give? Why do you pray? You ever examine the motives of your prayer? Am I depressing you yet, by the way? You ever examine the motives of your prayers? I, I was thinking the other morning, in fact, this week, because I, I had to preach on the subject of heaven yesterday in Creston, and I was preparing for this sermon as well this week, and I began to sort of think along these lines this week, and, and early one morning, sitting there drinking my coffee, and I thought to myself, when I get to heaven, am I going to have one single, solitary act that I have ever done in my whole life that will be untainted by a selfish motive? Will I have one? Will I have one single, solitary, unselfish act done solely for the glory of God? I think I've come to the conclusion that I won't. Come to the conclusion that I won't. No matter what I do or why I do it, I have come to realize that our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things and that there is nothing that I will ever do that will be completely untainted by selfishness or by vain conceit. Maybe there will be. But I'm not expecting that. 
I'm not expecting to stand in glory and have, oh, here's a, here's a handful of things that didn't have to be purged by fire at the, at the Bema seat. Even your obedience can be disobedience. Do you realize that? Why do you obey the Lord? What's your motive for obedience? You say, does it really matter? Sure it does. Sure your obedience, your motive for obedience matters. Why do you obey the Lord? You know, I avoid anything that might cause me to lust, for instance. Any website, any magazine article, I keep my eyes fixed ahead of me at the newsstands and all the stuff that's all around of us, TV, news, uh, TV, the news, anything that might run me in that direction, I avoid it. Made a covenant with my eyes not to look on any impure thing. So I avoid that at all costs. Now why do I do that? Do I do that because I want, if I don't want to fall morally in order that I might not disgrace the office of elder? Do I do that because I don't want to shame my family? Do I do that because I don't want to shame myself? Do I do that because I don't want to shame the other elders of this church? Or to disappoint you because it wouldn't be pleasing to you if I fell morally? So do I keep myself morally pure in order that I might please you? All of those things are acts of obedience, but look at the motive in all of them. What is the motive for my obedience? Selfishness, not purely the glory of God. Have I ever even obeyed one thing from a selfless motive? Simply for the glory of God. Have we done that? That's why Augustine said, Lord, deliver me from this wicked man, myself. John Bunyan said, there's enough sin in any one of my prayers to damn the whole world. And what he meant by that is every motive when it's laid bare, every paltry, insipid little thing that I pray about, every attempt that I make is just faulty in His presence, corrupted by myself, sinful. It leads us to say sometimes, Lord, forgive my good deeds. Forgive my good deeds, the good things that I do. Forgive those. Even in confessing, do you know it's possible to repent of your repentance? You ought to repent of your repentance. Sometimes I repent of something, and then I realize my motives for repenting are totally selfish. I've got to repent of my repentance. Then I confess a sin, then I've got to confess the wrong in my confession. And then I pray, and I pray for something, then I realize, Lord, forgive my good prayers. How deceitful and wicked we are. Do you see how selfishness manifests itself in Every single thing that we do. And then we have the Apostle Paul saying, do nothing out of selfishness or vain. I just want to cry. Are you kidding me? How do you do nothing that way? Is it even possible for me? I think it's possible for as much as rests with us to examine our motives and say, why am I doing this? And then to confess to the Lord, Lord, i got to repent over my repentance and i got to confess things that are wrong in my confession. And please forgive my good deeds and my prayers. And I need your mercy and your grace. That's all we can do. Do nothing from selfishness or from vain conceit. From vain conceit. That's a neat word. It comes from two Greek words. Kenos meaning empty. And doxa meaning glory. From which we get our word doxology. The word doxa is used throughout the book of Philippians to speak of the glory of Christ, the glory of God, the, the glory of our resurrection body. Those who put their hopes in in the glory of earthly shame. And here it really stands in stark contrast the, the human glory or the empty glory to the glory of God and God's glory. And empty conceit or vain conceit is empty glory. Now the individual who is motivated by a selfish desire also manifests a vain conceit. And all that vain glory or empty glory is is an exalted or exaggerated view of myself. When you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, then you will be motivated by a selfish desire because you honestly think that you deserve something in all of this. 
So when you have an exalted view of yourself and what you're really trying to do is protect your own interest and your own selfish desires, then you have vain conceit going on, an exaggerated view of yourself and it manifests itself in, I honestly think my interests are better than yours. And if that's what's going on in your mind, then you're going to be motivated by selfish desires. And everything that you do is going to be wanting to take glory from God to yourself, which is an empty glory. Because God says, I don't share my glory with anybody. And He doesn't like competitors. He doesn't like rivals. And He's not going to give you any glory. Do nothing from selfishness, self-seeking motive, or from empty glory. The desire to keep or bring glory to myself. Do absolutely nothing. Now let's look at the second one. We've looked at our motives. Looked at our motives. By the way, oh, before we leave this, let me point out one more thing, in case I haven't depressed you enough. Sometimes we can mask our motives. Sometimes we can mask our motives. And even the most impure motives can sound so sanctified. Can't they? Oh, I'm doing this for the flock. I'm doing this for the body. I'm just interested in the truth. I'm doing this out of love. By the way, I'm absolutely and utterly convinced that every person who has ever stirred up dissension, brought disunity in a church, or divided a church, has done so because they thought that their cause was God's and it was just. That's what they honestly think in their mind. They honestly think that their cause is truthful and it is just and that it's an issue of truth and they must do this for the sake of everybody else. And in reality, it is wickedness and sinfulness and it is human depravity and self-seeking motivation and self-glory to the height that if they could only see it themselves, they would be utterly humbled before a holy God. But we can make our self-seeking desires even sound so righteous because our hearts are so wicked. That's our motive. Second, our mindset. Look at the end of verse 3. But with humility of mind, it's humility of mind to regard one another as more important than yourselves. A humility of mind is, a, is the attitude that Jesus described in the Beatitudes when He said the poor in spirit. It's that lowliness of mind. Now you see how this is opposite of the vain conceit? The vain conceit is an exaggerated or an exalted view of yourself that puts yourself up here. The lowliness of mind is a view of yourself that puts yourself down here. And says, I'm really nothing. It's the humbleness of mind. It's the humility and the lowliness of that. And humility is an evasive quality. Selfishness is pervasive. Humility is evasive. Just when you think you've attained humility, you realize I haven't got it. Because the minute you say, I'm, I, th- I think I did something humble. There you go. It's right, it's right out the door. You can't even, you can't even begin to think you've achieved humility. Now, you may have a lowly mind, but the minute you realize you've got a lowly mind, it just went up a notch. Then you've got to bring it down. A humble man really doesn't even realize that he's humble. A humble man really realizes how proud he is. Does that seem ironic? A humble man realizes how proud he is. That doesn't seem right, does it? It seems like a humble man would realize how humble he is, but that's not the case. Paul says you do what you do with the humility or the lowliness of mind. This type of quality wasn't, in Paul's day, it wasn't a a virtue to be humble. The Greeks didn't consider humility to be a good thing at all. It's only in the New Testament in ancient times that you read of humility in a positive context or a positive light. And always in the New Testament, this idea of humility is used positively. Jesus said, I am meek and what? Humble and lowly in spirit. 
That's kind of a contradiction, doesn't it? Is it a contradiction for Jesus to say, I am humble? No, because He really was. And He knew that. And He was humble. But outside the New Testament, humility was a vice. Because the Greeks viewed humility as, as something base and something unvaluable and, uh, and something that was sort of lowly. And you didn't want to be a humble person because humble in their mind meant cowering in front of people. So it was good in the Greek mind to be a little puffed up. But then the New Testament comes along and Jesus comes along and He says, I am humble. I am lowly of mind. And it stands out because they didn't view it as a virtue. They viewed it as a vice. And the New Testament comes along and says it's not a, it's not a vice. It's a virtue. And it's the mother of all virtues. Humility is the mother of all virtues. It's the virtue we should pursue above all. We should be humble. We should be loving. We should think of ourselves lowly. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud and He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you at the proper time. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.19, it is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Psalm 138, verse 6, for though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. In Proverbs 37.11, but the humble will inherit the land. That's humility. It is that lowliness of mind which, my friends, is the corrective to vain conceit. It's the opposite and it's the corrective to vain conceit. To have a lowliness in your own heart, in your own mind. Paul says with that lowliness of mind, with that humble way of thinking, regard one another as more important than yourselves. The word regard means to to come to a settled conclusion after carefully thinking through something, and you come to that conclusion on the basis of the truth. In other words, you think hard and long about something, and you reach a conclusion based on the truth, and that is the way you think about it. That's the conclusion that you come to. Notice that Paul does not say, pretend that others are more important than yourself. He doesn't say, act like more others are more important than yourself. Nor does he even say, treat other people as if they're more important than yourself. He says, regard them as so. Come to a settled conclusion in your mind that it is so. Others are more important than you. They're more valuable than you. If you just pretend or if you just act that way, then it comes across as a, as a scam, as a fraud, as a joke. You ever met somebody who, who tries to be overly humble, overly gracious? and sort of dotes on you as, as to, to pretend or to act like you're more important than they are, man, that's annoying. Doesn't that just drive you nuts? But yet you, somebody, you see somebody who works behind the scenes and they honestly value as more, you as more important than themselves, that's incredibly encouraging and, and exhorting to you. It's satisfying to your spirit to see that. We had a, a Bible school professor at Miller. His name was Mr. Pollard. And uh, Mr. Pollard was uh, this... Short little guy, he played every instrument under the sun. He could play spoons, he could play a saw. You hand him something, he could make it sing. Very incredibly musical. And he always used his gifts to, to um, glorify the Lord and the most humble guy. And he taught, he taught at the school, he was a teacher. But one of the most humble teachers that was at the school, because when Mr. Pollard wasn't teaching, he was cleaning the bathrooms, he was painting walls, he was off working in a garden somewhere. He was just a servant of servants. And when you were around Mr. Pollard, you always felt like he valued you more than anything else in the world. And he valued serving people more than anything else in the world. It wasn't the sort of over-the-top, sticky, smarmy type of, oh, you're so great, you're so... 
No, no, no. That's just, that's gross. Mr. Pollard wasn't like that at all. He just, being around him, you just felt this guy really has a lowly heart. There's a genuine lowly heart and there's a disingenuous lowly heart. It's the genuine lowly, lowly heart that, and mind, that thinking, that conclusion, that I have reached the conclusion that other people are more important than myself. Not I will pretend, not I will act like, not I will treat them, but I will think of them in that way. And when you think of them in that way, then you treat them that way, and then you act like that. But Paul's not after just the actions. He wants the mindset, the humility of mind. That's why in verse 5 he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We'll get to that next week. With humility of mind, regard others as more important. And the word means surpassing and exceeding. It's used in chapter 3, verse 8, of that of the exceeding value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Chapter 4, verse 7, of the surpass, the peace of God which surpasses, it exceeds, it goes beyond all comprehension and description. It's that word. It means to excel something, to surpass it, to go beyond it. Consider others, regard others as far surpassing in value yourself. Not just a smidgen. He's a smidgen more valuable than I am. He edges me out in value. No, no, you regard one another, we regard one another as exceedingly more valuable than ourselves. That's our mindset. We've looked at the motive. we looked at the mindset. And by the way, did the Apostle Paul do that? Think of Paul's example. You, you see that, don't you? Here was a man who planted more churches than any of the other apostles, wrote more of the New Testament than any of the apostles, traveled, as far as we know from history, than all of the other apostles. There were certain things that Paul did that you couldn't add up all the other apostles and get to what he achieved. He has influenced human history over the last 2,000 years more than any of the other apostles and probably more of the other, all of the other apostles combined. Yet did he view himself as something to be worshipped and loved and adored and honored? No, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. And I'm not even fit to be called an apostle, he says, because I persecuted the church of God. That's the mindset. He writes to the Ephesians and he says, to me, the least of all the saints was this grace given. Does that sound like schmarmy, sort of low-mindedness to you? No, this was a man who in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, I'm the chief of all the sinners. That's why he viewed himself as the least of all the saints and the least of all the apostles. And then Paul writes, you regard others as more important than yourself because that's the type of man that Paul was. That's why he's an example that's worthy of following. So we've looked at the motive. We looked at our mindset. Now look at our mission. That's in verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do not merely look out for, skapeo is the word from which we get our word microscope, telescope. It means to look intently after something, to give attention to something, to, to look after. It doesn't just mean observe it. It doesn't just mean think about it or see it. It means to intently look after somebody else's interests and to pursue their interests before you pursue your own interests. Now friends, here's how this works out in a, in a church setting. And here's how this breaks down. You know where church conflict comes from? It comes from somebody pursuing their own interests ahead of somebody else's interests. That's what it always comes back to. Always comes back to that. It always comes back to not a humbleness of mind. You never get to the heart of a church conflict and arrive with two people who are so humble that you just want to emulate them. You never get that. You never get to the heart of a church conflict and arrive with two people who are putting the other person's interests ahead of their own. 
Nor do you get to the heart of a church conflict and find two people who are not in any way motivated by selfishness or vain conceit. At the heart of every conflict is one person or two people, or more than that even, when it gets really bad, people who are motivated by selfishness and are not concerned about anybody else's interests, but only their own. It's how I want Sunday school run. It's what I want to do on such and such a day. I want my songs sung in my way, according to the dictates of my tastes and my preferences. And I want the preacher to address my hobby horses. And I want the program to happen on this day and not that day. And I don't like this decision. And I don't like that decision. And I'm only concerned about this. And on and on and on and on it goes ad nauseum. You know what it boils down to? I want my interests. I'm not concerned about other people's interests. Now listen, we're not talking about gospel. We're not talking about essential doctrinal truths. I'm talking about preferences. What I want, what you want, and all the conflict comes out of that. Is it no wonder that down in chapter 2, verse 14, in this context of speaking of humility and looking after other people's interests and the example of all of that, that the Apostle Paul would say, do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing? Do you realize that every criticism, every grumbling, every complaint, every dispute, every bitterness, every backbiting, all of the use of our mouth and whining about this and whining about that, all boils down to me seeking my own interest. If it weren't for the fact that my interests were somehow crossed, I wouldn't complain. Who complains when they get their own way? I'm, I'm mad. I got my way. That makes sense. That doesn't make any sense. Nobody complains when they get their own way. Nobody complains when things go their way. Nobody complains when they get what they want. It's when my interests are not served that I complain. That's why Paul says you do everything without complaining. Because if you're doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, if you're doing nothing that's motivated by vanity, if you're doing nothing for yourself, if you're regarding others as more important than yourself, and if you're looking out for all of the interests of others, and you're not concerned about having your own interest seized upon or looked after, then there's no complaint. Not one. You don't have any complaints. You'll never hear Mr. Pollard complain. Four years I was at that school. Never heard a single complaint from that man about anything. You know why? Philippians chapter 2. Every bit of selfishness, every bit of vanity, every bit of conflict, every mark of complaining goes back to the fact that my interests are not served in some capacity. And that's just selfishness and it's sin. And you and I ought to look at that and be utterly, utterly horrified. Next time you're tempted to complain, just stop, stop. Just call time out, time out, and then ask yourself, what interest of mine am I putting before somebody else? Then you realize why you want to complain. It's because my interest is not being served. That's why I complain. That's why I'm bitter. That's why I use my mouth the way I do. That's where strife comes from. But if I am interested in somebody else's interests, and I'm really not concerned whether mine are met or not, then there's no complaining and there's no strife. Because I'm not going to make an issue out of it. I'm just going to say, that's their interest. They can have that. I would rather have them have their way. Now listen, Paul is not saying that you and I should never be concerned about ourselves. He's not saying that you shouldn't be concerned about changing the oil in your car or whether your family is warm or protected or provided for. You shouldn't be. He's not talking about those kind of interests. It's do not merely look out for your own interests. And he's assuming that we do pursue our own interests. And there is a legitimate pursuit of our own interests. 
He's not saying that you shouldn't care about what you eat or what you drink or how you sleep or personal hygiene. Teenage boys, listen to that. He's not saying that you don't neglect all of those things. He's saying that you don't pursue the agenda of your own personal interests at the expense of somebody else's. And so when do we consider the interests of other people's more valuable than ourselves? Do we do that just when our interests aren't crossed? Do we do that just when our interests are served as well? Do we do that just when our interests do not run contrary to their interests? No, the time to do that is when their interests conflict with mine. And I say, you have your way. Oh no, you have your way. No, you have your way. At the potluck this afternoon, speaking of motives and interests, when you're standing in line and you let somebody go in line in front of you, why do you do that? Is it because you don't want to look like a pig lining up first at the, the table? Right? Teenage boys don't have any problem with this, so we put them up at the front. We let them go through, and that makes the rest of us look good. When you put somebody in line in front of you, you're allowing them, their interests, and themselves to be considered more important than you. Is that not a good way to serve each other? Now listen, this afternoon, somebody has to go first. Right? We can't all sit around and argue about whose interests... We got a volunteer. <laughs> we appreciate you bending over and taking one for the team, Ray. We love that. Thank you. Go ahead and walk your base. <laughs> Somebody has to go first. But friends, there is a lowliness of mind that should be evident among all of us. Where that Christian love and that Christian charity is there. We're not concerned about ourselves. We're putting other people ahead of ourselves. And we're walking in humility. Now you say, Jim, I understand how that's applied. I understand the motive. I understand the mindset. I understand the mission. Now how do I do that practically? You'll notice that a lot of this has to do with the thinking, how we regard others, what the motive of our heart is, how we see a situation, how we view our own interests. So how do I become a humble person? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he answers this question. He says, how do I... How do I really acquire that type of character, that type of attitude that is willing to sacrifice itself for others? And then he writes this. And this is so simple, yet I thought it was so profound. Lewis writes, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him. Do you notice the humility in the statement? I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. That seems so simple, doesn't it? but so profound. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Do you realize how proud you are? I'm a, I'm a prideful individual. And every person seated in this room is a prideful individual. We are proud. We have Satan's pride in our hearts. The same sin that cast him down, that made the devil fall, is the same sin that resides in your heart and in mine. We are proud. Now some of you say, Jim, I may not have attained humility yet, but I'm not proud. Oh, okay. Sure you're not. Now I may be a lot of things, Jim, but prideful isn't one of them. Now come on. The, the, the farther you are away from realizing that your central problem and my central problem is that of pride, the more danger that you are in. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And then we hate that pride. We hate it in ourselves. 
and we wage war against it in ourselves. And we begin to purposefully think of others as more important than ourselves and other people's interests as better than mine. There's a second step, I think. The first step is realizing that one is proud. The second thing is to meditate on your sin. Meditate on your sin. Do you ever stop for just a moment and analyze your own heart? And you see all of the lust and all of the hatred and all of the envy and the jealousy and the backbiting and the gossip and the criticism and the negativism and all of the lack of gratitude and thankfulness and all of the pride and the arrogance and the hubris and the self-seeking motive and all of the all of the desires of your flesh that you want to see gratified. Do you ever stop and just look at your own heart and the sinfulness of your own heart in the light of the law and the person, the nature of a holy God, and then see Jesus hanging on the cross and realize He died for me? That's humbling. Once you start to look at your own sin, then other people become far more valuable than you. Friends, it's not until you view yourself as the chief of sinners that you will also view yourself as the least of all the saints. It has to begin with that. I have to be the chief of sinners in my own eyes and in my own heart before I can ever be honestly think of myself as the least of all the saints. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for humbling us. Thank You for reminding us again through all of this text and all of these words just how prideful we are. And God, we before You we are nothing. You are holy beyond description. And yet we are so unworthy and so wicked in and of ourselves. We do not deserve to come into Your presence. We do not deserve even one iota of grace. And yet You pour it out abundantly on us in Jesus Christ. Father, give us the grace, we pray, to honestly view ourselves as the chief of all sinners and to view the pride in our own hearts and to think of ourselves lowly to consider other people's interests ahead of our own that we might thus endeavor to preserve the unity of the body and of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray that You would grace us to live with each other and for each other to the glory of Jesus Christ who set such a wonderful example of that selfless sacrifice and self-giving. It is in His name that we commit ourselves, lift up our souls to You and pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.